Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Displaced Person by Eric Frank Russell. First published in Weird Tales, September 1948. And it is... A very short story, and I'm going to ask Eric to read it for us. Okay, I'll use my best 1948 voice. Yeah, you're back. No. All right. <laughs> Displaced person. He glided out of the gathering dusk and seated himself at the other end of my bench and gazed absently across the lakes toward the Sherry Netherland. The setting sun had dribbled blood in the sky. Central Park was enjoying its eventide hush. There was only the rustle of leaves and grasses, the cooing of distant shadowy couples, the muted toot of a bus way over on Fifth. When the bench quivered its announcement of company, I had glanced along it expecting to find some derelict seeking a flop. The difference between the anticipated and the scene was such that I looked again long, carefully, out of one corner of my eye so that he wouldn't notice it. Despite the gray half-tones of twilight, what I saw was a study in black and white. He had thin, sensitive features, as white as his gloves and his shirt front. His shoes and suit were not quite as black as his finely curved eyebrows and well-groomed hair. His eyes were blackest of all, that solid, supernal darkness that can be no deeper or darker. Yet they were alive with an underlying glow. He had no hat. A slender walking stick of ebony rested against his legs. A black, silk-lined cloak hung from his shoulders. If he'd been doing it for the movies, he couldn't have presented a better picture of a distinguished foreigner. My mind speculated about him the way minds do, and momentarily they've nothing else to bother them. A European refugee, it decided. A great surgeon or sculptor or something like that. Perhaps a writer or a painter. More likely, the latter. I stole another look at him. In the lowering light, his pale profile was hawk-like. The glow behind his eyes was strengthening with the dark. His cloak lent him majesty. The trees were stretching their arms toward him as if to give comfort through the long, long night. No hint of suffering marked that face. It had nothing in common with the worn-lined faces I had seen in New York, features stamped forever with the brand of the Gestapo. On the contrary, it held a mixture of boldness and serenity. Impulsively, I decided that he was a musician. I could imagine him conducting a choir of 50,000 voices. I am fond of music, he said in low, rich tones. He turned his face toward me, revealed a pronounced peak in his hair. Really? The unexpectedness of it had me muddled. What sort? I asked feebly. This. He used his ebony stick to indicate the world at large. The sigh of ending day. Yes, it is soothing, I agreed. We were silent a while. Slowly the horizon soaked up the blood in the sky. A wan moon floated over the towers. You're not a native of New York, I prompted. No. Resting long, slender hands upon his stick, he gazed meditatively forward. I am a displaced person. I'm sorry. Thank you, he said. 
I couldn't sit there and leave him flat like that. The choice was to continue or go. There was no need to go. I continued. Care to tell me about it? His head came round and he studied me as if only now aware of my presence. That weird light in his orbs could almost be felt. He smiled gradually, tolerantly, showing perfect teeth. I would be wasting your time. Not at all. I'm wasting it anyway. Smiling again, he used his stick to draw unseeable circles in front of his black shoes. In these days, it is all an all too familiar story, he said. A leader became so blinded by his own glory that no longer could he perceive his own blunders. He developed delusions of grandeur, posed as the final arbiter of everything from birth to death, and thereby brought into being a movement for his overthrow. He created the seeds of his own destruction. It was inevitable in the circumstances. You bet, I supported wholeheartedly. To hell with dictators. The stick slipped from his grasp. He picked it up, juggled it idly, resumed his circle drawing. The revolt didn't succeed, I suggested. No. He looked at the circles as if he could see them. It proved too weak and too early. It was crushed. Then came the purge. His glowing eyes surveyed the sentinel trees. I organized that opposition. I still think it was justified, but I dare not go back. Fat lot, you should care about that. You'll fit in here like Riley. I don't think so. I'm not welcome here either. His voice was deeper. Not wanted anywhere. You don't look like Trotsky to me, I cracked. Besides, he's dead. Cheer up. Don't be morbid. You're in a free country now. No man is free until he's beyond his enemy's reach. He glanced at me with an irritating touch of amusement. When one's foe has gained control of every channel of propaganda, uses them exclusively to present his own case and utterly suppress mine and damns the truth in advance as the worst of lies, there is no hope for me. <laughs> That's your European way of looking at things. I don't blame you for it, but you've got to snap out of it. You're in America now. We're free speech here. A man can say what he likes, write what he likes. If only that were true. It is true, I asserted, my annoyance beginning to climb. Here, you can call the Raja of Bama hyphenated so-and-so if you want. Nobody can stop you, not even a cop. We're free, like I told you. He stood up, towering amid embracing trees. From my sitting position, his height seemed tremendous. The moon lit his face in pale ghastliness. Would that I had one-tenth of your comforting faith. With that, he turned away. His cape swung behind him, billowing in the night breeze until it resembled mighty wings. My name, he murmured softly, is Lucifer. After that, there was only the whisper of the wind. I think you missed your calling, Eric. You're becoming an amazing audiobook narrator. <laughs> You're kind, Jesse. Thank you. That was really good. Um, Thank you. It's a joke story, or is it? Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think it raises a lot of very interesting questions about the differences between 
genres like is it a joke or is it not a joke mm -hmm. the differences between first and subsequent readings and the difference between differences between a story that you read tethered in its historical moment and a story that you read not tethered in its historical moment those are just some of the questions that i see in this story what about you you start out by saying it feels like a joke story perhaps what what would it mean to you if it did feel that uh, fit into that genre what would it mean if it were something else well I, I think i think it can be in more than one genre right um the the joke genre is it, it seems to be i don't know if this is true but it's my, my feeling is that i haven't done a study or anything but my feeling is that magazines um which were super popular in the in the 20th century newspapers popular in 19th century right magazines popular in 20th century they have this issue, which is, or these many issues, um, which was they have to fill a certain number of pages and they get stories of varying length. Um, and so they need to have some little ones to fill in. And they tend to be, you know, you can't do that much in that m many pages. So they have this whole sort of, I don't know, it's not really a genre. It's just sort of a kind of story that is the joke story. It's a story that it's not big enough to develop vast worlds generally it's here's the reveal and it's not it's not like we haven't seen a story like this before um but it's not substantial enough in its size to like give us that feeling of um horror i guess that you, you, the same sort of story i think there's one from the twilight zone um where there's somebody who's been locked away in a prison and we find out who that person is. Oh, it's the devil, right? Um, uh -huh. And when that person's released, oh, all the horror comes into the world, and World War II starts, right? So this is kind all of all hell breaks loose. Exactly. Um, this is the kind of um, story that that would fit into if it was if it was much longer, perhaps. But um, uh, it's also subversive, and I think a subversive story. Um, Maybe it's like a quick punch. Let me offer an alternative genre. I'm not trying to discount what you just said about um, needing a punch for a short story, for a sufficiently short story so that the whole thing sort of feels like a, a lovely nugget. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't want, for example, an O. Henry ending at the end of a 40-page story. Right. I mean, there's just too long a buildup for too little payoff. And what that suggests to me is that what you're calling a joke story, um, but in the more generally, the, the, the kinds of stories that, that turn on that flip at the end, um, if all they do is turn on that flip at the end, then they need to be short. But it may be that the flip at the end is only a confirmation. I happen to be one of those readers, and I'm sure that many, many were when the story was first published, who understood from the beginning that this was going to turn out to be Lucifer. Right. Um, the illustration shows his hair peaked up as if they were horns. Mm -hmm. um, it, he there's the central there's the setting sun with dribbled blood in the sky, um, and all of this black and white imagery uh it, it was pretty clear to me within in fact the sec by the second paragraph that this was going to turn out to be the devil um so calling himself lucifer at the end really didn't provide much of 
of a punchline for me. But it did ask me, especially when I went back to reread it, why he's called Lucifer, mm. not Satan or Beelzebub, um, Lord of the Flies, <laughs> uh, Old Nick, because Lucifer means bringer of light. Mm -hmm. And in some way, this story, it seems to me, and for me, it was even more uh, potent on the on the rereading. Um, this story raises a fundamental question when the narrator says, you bet I supported wholeheartedly to hell with dictators. What what the narrator is unwittingly suggesting is, although he must know it now because he's telling the story in the past tense, um, what he was suggesting then was that Lucifer and God changed places, that God is, in fact, a dictator. He controls everything from life to from birth to death mm -hmm. and that he ought to go to hell. And the Prince of Darkness <laughs> is, in fact, the bearer of light and is dis a displaced person wandering um, in the world. And I would like to suggest that looking at it that way, that last line makes you want to discuss the story. So there is a genre in West Africa called problem tales. Um, I first came upon it when I was reading... Uh, the Palm Wine Drinker by Amos Tutwola. And the main character stops in a town and they say, we need somebody to decide a question for us. And then they present the question. And the main character says, well, I didn't know the answer. Uh, and I had to continue. So if you do know the answer, please send it to me. And he gives a postal address. And he goes away. There's no answer to the question that needed to be adjudicated. Uh, I, it just felt incomplete to me. And I asked a colleague at the time, who had been, as it turns out, uh, a missionary in West Africa. And she told me that they have a genre in which the point of the work is not to function as a work by itself, but as a work that stimulates conversation. So a good problem story is one that gets people talking together. And it's, it has to be judged not alone, but in social use. And now it seems to me, and I think there are other stories, kinds of stories that sort of fit into that as well. For example, Zen koans don't give you the answer. They prompt you to do further thinking um, or Talmudic disputation. Mm. Those are narratives where the rabbis don't actually, I mean, often don't just give you the answer. They, they lay out questions and they expect you then to turn to someone else and you start debating it. So that, that, that's a genre of story, if I can put those three together. It seems to me that this story could be viewed as one of those because it asks us to think, well, wait a minute. Why isn't God like a dictator? Why are we supposed to follow all of his dictates? And why is revolt against that? absolute control, which surely the angels were subject to. Why is revolt against absolute control wrong for powerful beings, but right for us? It raises a lot of really interesting questions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so to me, that makes it, um, it, it could be a joke. If you didn't get it until he says, I'm Lucifer, then, then it's a joke. But if you do get it, even on a rereading, 
I think it prompts you to want to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. At least it made me want to think about them, and I'd be happy to talk about them with you. <laughs> I I do. I do want to talk about I, I think uh, what's remarkable about this story is that it is, it's not the, the devil. He says, I'm the devil. Because then that would make it sound like... Um, like a very specific part of that sort of mythology, right? Which is he—he's the king of of the de- uh, I don't know the king of hell, right? And right. Lucifer is the devil in most people's minds. But what's so funny is you know the devil has so many names because uh, of the way the the Bible is written and how people don't just say directly everything they mean and it's not one person writing it so that they have a, a coherent plan so all sorts of mythology comes up and and the story of lucifer is not the story of of you know the guy with the horns on his head like we see in the in the opening illustration necessarily as much as he is uh the bringer of light right that's what his name means and as you pointed out I, I think that it it is much more subtle than, you know, I'm the devil, <laughs> and oh, yeah. see, it's a reversal, and you you've been championing. In fact, Lucifer is a a rebel leader of a failed coup, right, or a failed um, revolution, and there are some really interesting Im- a lot of there's a lot of great imagery in this very short story, but there's a few that I want to point to and uh, or a couple that i want to point to and a couple that i want you to help me with because i'm not sure what they mean but i might have some ideas so the first set of images that repeats i think is very neat um this is from the second page the trees were stretching their arms towards him as if to give comfort through the long long night so this is actually set at sunset in central park in in new york we actually have like we could probably figure out which park bench this was right given that <laughs> they they have a specific um condominium or uh apartment building in view there is uh, where the sun would set on such a day and we we have even you know where he's facing away and when, when he's not so we could probably find these these trees if we looked hard enough um but why are they comforting him? Well, I'm not sure. But when it comes up again on the final page, he stood up, towering amid embracing trees. So if he's the bringer of light, it could be that, you know, trees just like light. <laughs> and they love him because he brings light. Um, but they are actually comforting him as the sun goes down. And this actually goes right back to what that bringer of light comes to. Uh, Lucifer is sometimes also called the morning star. And that's because he's associated with the planet Venus, which is both the evening star and the morning star, it turns out. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can't have this great god in the sky if it's the bringer of, you know, the actual light, the light and goodness being sort of the same thing, God, without something to contrast it with which is the devil so that that got me thinking that direction um there's one other and i want you to uh, help me with this one because the only thing i can think of is circles of hell but um it goes like the like this um let's see uh 
Right. The revolt didn't succeed, I suggested. No, he looked at the circles as if he could see them. So these are the circles that he draws just a little earlier. It says, uh, smiling again, he used his stick to draw unseeable circles in front of his black shoes. So he's got his walking stick, and he draws some circles in front of his shoes. Unseeable circles. Well, he's seeing them. <laughs> So what does this mean? Why has this come up? Because the only thing I can think of is circles of hell. Because it's circles plural. Well, um, I, I think that that's, in fact, quite reasonable. Um, the, the Bible doesn't give us the story of the revolt no. and the casting down and so on. Milton does. Right. In Paradise Lost, and it's Milton who gives us the most famous image of the circles of hell. So I think that's a, an entirely apt uh, reading. Uh, but I think there's another one as well. And that is the circle of the year. Mm. This is a story that talks about sunrise and sunset. And what he likes, the music he likes most, is the ending of the day. Mm. This is someone who has been condemned to be away from God, which presumably is a is a, is a horrible punishment to be away from God um, for eternity. Yes, the he long, has long no night. choice. Exactly, and so the if one were to give this a certain positive Christian reading, if one were to think of Lucifer as in fact trying to illegitimately induce the sympathy of his listener. Um, the contrast to that is the tree, the rood, um, to use the old English term for it, the trees that reach to him, that offer him the possibility of some kind of comfort, which is to say, Jesus. Mm. So one one could give this that other reading. And Jesus instead of is coming away start one point two, I think, in the Bible, isn't he? I don't know, but I know that he is, his existence is announced by a star that okay. stays permanently in the east. Hmm. Um, and so those trees may be stand-ins for the cross uh, in one reading. In another, of course, they could just be uh, the projection on the part of the, uh, the man who, after all, has told us how vivid his imagination is, right? He says, well, he's a musician, he's a painter, he's a this, he's a that. Um, and really, his imagination is suspect. The story begins, he glided out of the gathering dusk and seated himself at the other end of my bench and gazed absently across the lakes toward the Sherry Netherland. Okay? That's what he tells us happened. Right? That's how the guy arrived at the on the scene. The second paragraph begins, when the bench quivered its announcement of company, I glanced along it expecting to find some derelict seeking a flop. Those two statements don't go together. Mm -hmm. If he saw the man come gliding out of the dusk, then he saw the man come gliding out of the dusk and he wouldn't be disabused of what the guy looks like when he turns to see him sitting on the bench. Mm. Right. So there's something going on in the narrator 
which I think Russell gives us uh, lots of hints for that really depend upon the narrators following his own wild imaginings. So if if I may make one point about the the timeliness of it, a displaced person is a technical term that was used after, during and after World War II. That's when it became well known for people who could no longer stay in their own countries Um, and and for for lots of reasons. And we have internal displaced people now, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, In this story, in this story, which clearly has World War II references, Mm There is this line near the end. No man is free until he's beyond his enemy's reach. When one's foe has gained control of every channel of propaganda, uses them exclusively to present his own case and utterly suppress mine and damns the truth in advance as the worst of lies, there is no hope for me. Mm. But I've got to tell you, there are an awful lot of people in America today, including those who would walk through Central Park, who would say that that's exactly the situation we have now. Mm-hmm. And it's not God who is controlling the channels of information and calling what truth may be uttered lies. Mm-hmm. It is, in fact, someone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So there is a timeliness to this story that lifts it out of its 1948 publication date. Um, that makes me think that this really is a it's a lot more than a joke. It becomes, in a sense, a classic story, even though, like most general truths, it is presented grounded in a specific. I'm really glad that you uh, suggested that we read this. And I'm really glad that our, for that one of our listeners said we should have more Eric Frank Russell. Mm-hmm. Me too. I, I want to follow up that second paragraph sentence with the second part of that paragraph which i think is is now even more interesting when i hear you talk it goes like this the difference between the anticipated and the scene was such that i looked again long carefully out of one corner of my eye so i he so that he wouldn't notice it so he had anticipated his coming the coming of lucifer he anticipated what he would look like um, and then I love, and I make note, the, note of this before, and I, I, I think pat myself on the back, probably as Eric Frank Russell wants the reader to pat themselves on the back when they notice it, um, that as our narrator tells the story, and we don't know much about our narrator, but as he tells the story, he says, um, ah, a great surgeon or a sculptor or something like that, perhaps a writer or a painter, more likely the latter. And then I stole another look at him. In the lowering light, his pale profile was hawk-like. The glow behind his eyes, oh, his eyes are also called orbs, which also fits with stars and planets as well, I should point out. Mm-hmm. But um, then when he, we actually get to the, the first conversation, right, we get this other anticipation. Impulsively, I decided that he was in a musician. I could imagine him conducting a choir of 50,000 voices. That's a big choir. And then the first word, I am fond of music, he said in low, rich tones. How does this just come out of the blue? Well, apparently Lucifer can sort of absorb or read the thoughts of the man next to him on the bench. And we know this, not just because of this one coincidence, 
but also because a little later in that conversation he says are you a native of new york no resting long slender hands upon his stick he gazed meditatively forward i am a displaced person well <laughs> that word that phrase had come up from earlier in the story right a displaced person it, this is all coming from the mind of the narrator and lucifer doesn't even seem to notice that he's talking to this guy until he turns to him and looks at him right there's a kind of um playfulness here that it makes me think that the narrator is eric frank russell and that this is a daydream that he had of what to you know what kind of story to tell while sitting on a bench in new york um and observing the sunset the uh trees metaphor i want to point to one more thing i just noticed this is really interesting his glowing eyes surveyed the sentinel trees the trees are watching the trees mm -hmm. are on guard this is a very very good story you gotta read more russell, frank russell russell was himself a brit and yet he published most of his stories first in American magazines that had to do with taste and economics and so on. There's the taste of the audience. But it's interesting, it seems to me, in relation to your stressing the notion of displacement, that Russell himself mm. was displaced as as a writer, um, getting more fame in the U.S. than he did in the country of his birth and occupation. It's also interesting to look at the way he uses those details. The bus that the, the uh, narrator hears way over on Fifth Avenue, mm. um, the, the bus on Fifth Avenue, well, Fifth Avenue runs along the east side of Central Park. Central Park is quite wide. Um, if you can hear the bus on Fifth Avenue, then you can't hear the the buses that go and, and the, the vehicular traffic that goes along Central Park West. That's just too far away. So if you see the sunset, the bus is behind your back because you're looking from east to west to see where the sun would be setting. And you would be looking through the trees so that even though you're in the midst of the city, you in fact would visually be in the midst of the forest. It's the noises that make something else, but the sight would be something more hmm, primal. That goes along perfectly with the narrator concocting the idea that this must be a painter. And then when we get to the music of the spheres, the orbs, as you point out, then he decides that this fellow must be a musician. Mm -hmm. um, it's a story not only about politics and theology, it's also a story about how we as individuals construct our world from our own minds. And there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.